0: about chicken a la king, mango and garbanzo, tabbouleh, potatoes and vegetables with roasted garlic and basil, zucchini ziti, granola fruit bar, look at all this
1: beautiful food,
0: Hello, I'm Dana Dude, and welcome to Green Eggs and Dan. Like many of you, I'm stuck at home during this pandemic, eating and drinking my face off. And so are most of my guests. So that leaves me with a laptop from 2012. All right, I'm going to start recording. My own mic and me alone in a room, hoping my guests are able to record their half of the conversation. Sure. Okay, cool. So, bear with us. Look at all these people. Guys, welcome to Green Eggs and Dan. My guest today is my favorite food writer of all time, and I can't believe I'm talking to her, and this is a dream come true. Ruth Reichel began her career at the LA Times, then became the food critic at the New York Times, writing some of the most memorable food reviews ever, including my favorite, I just reread it, her two-faced review of Le Cirque. She was editor-in-chief at Gourmet Magazine for a decade. She has set the bar for what a good food memoir could be, She's written the books Tender at the Bone, Garlic and Sapphire, Save Me the Plums, and the book that for me was a breathtaking work of writing and is a big part of why I love food so much, Come Me with Apples. Please welcome Ruth Reichel. Hi, Ruth. Hi. Wow. That was quite an intro. Thank you. You know, as a comedian, we're used to introducing people on stage, so we get dramatic with the, uh, with the intros. <laughs> <laughs> so, Ruth, we're gonna get right into your fridge right now. I'm gonna share the screen. And your fridge is exactly as I would have imagined your fridge to be. Uh, it is so beautifully stocked. You can see Ruth's fridge on my Instagram at standupdan. You use every single square millimeter. It looks like uh it looks like the expensive section at Dean and DeLuca is what this fridge looks like to Well, me.
2: Not quite.
0: <laughs> You've got so much fun stuff going on. And uh, yeah, let's uh, let's start breaking it down. You sent me a ton of pictures, which is awesome. So I'm just gonna start going through it. So this seems like your nut and uh, dried fruit drawer.
2: Nuts, dried fruit, and capers.
0: Yeah, so you've got the salted capers. Why do you do salted capers over the capers in oil?
2: These capers, I think, are the best capers you can buy. They, they're from Italy. They're bigger, they're tastier um and i use a lot of capers my my husband loves capers so um you know to me it you're you're not investing a lot of money in buying the best of an ingredient like that which really adds you know pow and and zest to your food so a bag of these is like $35 but it lasts me 6 months maybe yeah And, um, you know, you just take a little handful of them, you
0: um,
2: get the salt off and you are making your food instantly more delicious.
0: Yeah, I put it in the same categories as like anchovies where it's like, you just anchovies also very big with me. Do you do salt packed or you do oil?
2: Um, I do the whole ones packed in salt. Oh, wow. Um, actually direct from the same company. I get the capers. They're from Gustiamo.
0: Fantastic. Um, and then, of course, the pine nuts. Is this for on top of salads or pestoing?
2: Well, it's basil season. You know, I mean, I'm growing a lot of basil. It's the one of, I only grow herbs, but I grow a lot of basil. So I'm sorry to say these are not great pine nuts. These are Chinese pine nuts, which are about half the size of the Italian ones and about half as flavorful but also half as expensive. <laughs>
0: <laughs> wow, Ruth is putting uh, Chinese pine nuts on blast right now, guys. <laughs> Fighting Ruth. Well, if, you,
2: if you put them up side by side with each other, it's kind of amazing how different the Chinese ones are from the Italian ones.
0: Yeah, I mean, well, the Chinese seem to be trying to get into a lot of the high-end food game. Like, they're doing truffles, they're doing caviar, and it, uh, it's all not nearly as good. True. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything that they're doing better than than uh
2: Well, I mean, all all the things that are Chinese, they do better. So there I mean there are um there are lots of, you know, indigenous Chinese ingredients that you want to get the Chinese versions of. Um it's just when they're trying to do truffles. I mean, truffles are not really a Chinese thing.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's not not indigenous to that area. So let's go to the next uh, section here. You've got your fancy tahini, organic tahini.
2: Again, I mean this is great tahini and if you're going to buy tahini, you might as well buy really good a really good version, which this is. The supermarket version is pretty nasty.
0: Yeah, it's amazing to me how bad tahini can be because you're like, okay, well it's just sesame seeds, but no, they can it can be pretty awful. And for some reason you're right. This the supermarket ones are pretty bad.
2: And, you know, again, um, it's a small investment to make a big difference.
0: Yeah. Agreed. hundred percent. Uh, the Middle Eastern in me is hundred percent on your side there. Although I haven't tried Chinese tahini yet. I wonder how theirs tastes.
2: That <laughs> I haven't
1: had.
0: <laughs> um, okay, cool. So this section I love, this is like your cured, let's call it the cured meat and fish eggs, uh, section.
2: Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, so, um, there's smoked trout there, which is delicious. And then there are two different kinds of local cured meats. Um, the soprasata is from Jacuterie, which is, um, a local up here, uh, charcuterie and they make really good stuff. And the bacon is muskies, which is from Wisconsin. And I love their bacon. And then we offer. On the side, you've got botarga, which is one of those ingredients that I always have on hand. It's sometimes called poor man's caviar. It's um, dried mullet roe.
0: Yeah, I love botarga. And that's another one of those kind of secret ingredients that you can put in anything and adds this umami fishy flavor that's delightful. Exactly. Although it's funny, I haven't, I've had a a tough time finding the the intact mullet rose of the batarga, like I, I, I have something. Someone, a friend of mine, gave me a like a jar of it that's already powdered, and it's it's it doesn't have oh, nearly the same, the same flavor. No, it's not
2: the same. And also, you really, the thing about having the whole one is that they they come waxed, and you sort of take the wax off, and then you can slice it in beautiful little shavings that are I mean, the dry, the already grated one. Like anything that's grated, it, it dries out. And the whole ones, it's sliced and it's moist and it's a completely different experience.
0: Yeah, it's that's that's for sure. That is definitely worth spending a little a little more money on. Um, Okay, so now we've got the Korean section with the (laughs) (laughs) you've got gochujang, which is like a fermented Korean hot sauce. What are you using that in?
2: Any any place you would use a hot sauce. Um, I happen to love Korean food um so um i use gochujang a lot in i mean you can also just use it in vegetables if you're sauteing vegetables throw throw a little of the gochujang in um anything that you would be using kimchi in you might also want to put a little gochujang in
0: yeah yeah what is this kimchi that you have the resourced kimchi right next to it I, it's like it's a very I, is that kimchi because it seems like a very small thimble-sized kimchi
2: It is, but I also have, you can't see it in the back. I have, you can sort of see right at the top there. um, Oh, here. bottom. Yeah, that that is a homemade kimchi that somebody brought me.
0: Oh, okay. Now we're talking.
1: That's a big,
2: big bottle of it. This is from um, a box. Um, I've been buying boxes from Blue Hill. They have this thing called Resourced. Yeah. And um, their seafood box last week had this homemade kimchi in it.
0: It's very cute. Uh yeah. I just read that uh Blue Hill is so Blue Hill's Blue Hill uh is a restaurant in upstate New York in Tarrytown that uh they do an insane tasting menu that, you know, it's on the farm and you get to see the animals outside the window that you're eating. <laughs> and uh, I heard that they're open they're they're doing the tasting menu outside now.
2: They are um I I actually talked to Dan Barber the chef there every couple of days for another project I'm working on. Um, and they just opened uh, last week. He worked out a thing where it's kind of a picnic. So you order ahead of time and you get there and the food is, and the drink that you've ordered is already on the table. And the only time anybody, and it's all outdoors. And the only time you actually have contact with someone is they have these long, like six foot long pizza paddles, yeah. and they come and bring protein on that. So nobody ever there ever gets closer to you than six feet. I mean, oh, wow. they really worked out how to do um, distanced dining.
0: Wow, very cool. And the space there is just as beautiful as it gets. I could imagine that It is
2: that being... as beautiful. It is magical.
0: So now we've got the uh, kind of hot saucy area here. What is this hot fire? It seems like you have a couple of these. I've never... Uh...
2: It, this is um, uh, a chef in New York and Brooklyn, who's making the most delicious fermented hot sauces and he makes them in a bunch of different flavors. I happen to love, this is um, jalapeno habanero. Oh, cool. Um, but very, really delicious. I, I love hot food. So um, the, the vinegar is also, that's from, um, I, I bought that in DC um,
0: the ramp vinegar,
2: ramp vinegar. Um, it's, uh, again, a, a local artisan who's making really great um, different kinds of vinegars. Um, in, behind, in the back there, there is Red Boat yes. fish sauce. I just is, used
0: that last night, actually. It's my favorite fish sauce. It's
2: great fish sauce. And next to it is pomegranate molasses.
0: Oh, OK. That's uh, you know, I'm, I'm Iranian. So we use that a ton in our cooking.
2: Yeah, and again, oh, that's, another that's great right ingredient to have on hand. It keeps forever, and way over um, on the outside of the other hot sauce is colatura, which is basically different kinds of fish sauce. It's an Italian fish sauce. It's made um, very much like the Vietnamese fish sauce.
0: Oh, I didn't know! I didn't know there was an Italian fish sauce. Tell me about this. Yes,
2: yeah. it's it's called colatura, and it's essentially what the romans called garum which is um basically you know fish that are salted left to dry it's the it's exactly the way um vietnamese
0: fish sauce is made is it with anchovies as well
2: it's with anchovies as well yes
0: oh cool i didn't so i I had read about about garum i didn't know that it was still uh it was still being used
2: still being made and again you know in The great thing about anchovies and why I always, I mean, I actually have, I think, four different kinds of anchovies in my refrigerator, although I'm not sure you're seeing any of them. But one of the things about anchovies is if you um, put them into a hot pan with a little bit of oil and some onions, they will disintegrate almost immediately. And they add this deep flavor. To food, but it doesn't taste like anchovies. It just tastes like very flavorful salt.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's the thing. When people say I hate anchovies, I'm like, you don't know what anchovies are.
2: <laughs> exactly. Exactly.
0: Like, I think they're associating it with like anchovies on their pizza, which is you know a little bit of a stronger flavor. I mean, I lo- I'm I, I I can't get enough of them. But for people who hate anchovies, if you disintegrate it in your sauce, it's it's what makes. Uh, a sauce great usually if you're like what's that flavor it's usually anchovies
2: right and so the fish sauce and the colatura both work that way without you having to actually melt them
0: all right colatura is on my list right now i'm getting that talk to me about this over here this is your cornmeal. why do you so your rice is in the fridge
2: um so this is these, these are um products from anson mills who um They're, um, in South Carolina and they are growing things the way they were grown in the South, you know, 150 years ago, they're bringing back. I mean, this Carolina rice is a rice that was almost gone. Um, and their stuff is organic. So if you've got organic, anything, you know, flour, cornmeal, buckwheat, um, it behooves you to put it in the refrigerator because the germ is still in there. It's a living thing and right. it will go bad.
0: Interesting. Uh, yeah, I've read a lot about Anson Mills. They're, it's like a very cool thing that they're doing there, just like bringing back almost endangered, let's call them, rices and stuff.
2: Yeah. And so, you. I mean, underneath that, there's um, some good Italian flour for making pizza, there's buckwheat for making blini. Um, so I have this whole drawer of, um, living flowers.
0: I love it. And rice. Are you making bread in quarantine? Are you becoming a big, you bread know,
2: I, I did in the beginning and now, you know, one of the things you want to do is support local bakeries and so forth. So I've stopped. Yeah. Um, I, I got a hundred pounds of flour in in the early days of the, Quarantine, when I went to the supermarket and there was no flour, I freaked out completely. Yeah. And um, a friend who has a Chinese noodle factory uh, sent me 100 pounds of flour. <laughs> which I pretty much distributed locally to other people who couldn't get flour. Oh, that's cool. Um, and so I was b- baking frantically in the beginning. And then I thought, no, this is silly. I should just go buy my bread.
0: Yeah, it's amazing how in the beginning of quarantine, we were all like, uh, it, it was like rationing like starches. It was like we were at war. Exactly.
2: We, don't, we, we are at war.
0: Yeah, honestly. Okay, so tell me about this drawer over here. This is, uh, I don't know what any of these are except for the grape Poupon and I'm assuming tomato paste.
2: That is tomato paste, yes. Um, on the extreme left is Worcestershire sauce. From Lady Jane's Alchemy, um, it's locally made,
1: um, oh, wow. real
2: Worcestershire sauce. It is the best Worcestershire sauce I've ever had in my life. Wow! Um, and so it it sells out almost immediately, but as soon as I can buy it, I do. Um, Hozon is something that um, David Chang's company. Is making and it's kind of they're experimenting with misos made from things that other than soy, right? So um, I think this one is rye, um, and again I've had these for years and years and years. And the other thing is is the banji, which is their version of um, soy sauce, but again this is also made with rye. And oh, um, interesting! When they started making these things. I don't know, five years ago, I asked if I could um, buy some to play around with. And um, I I particularly love this banji. It's really delicious. It's like a fuller soy sauce. And I don't think you can see it. I'm, I'm not sure I took a good enough picture, but I have about six different kinds of soy sauces too.
1: Oh, cool. You know,
2: Chinese soy sauce, Korean soy sauce, Japanese soy sauce. Uh, American soy sauce, uh, aged soy soy's um, soy sauce is very dramatically in flavor.
0: Well, tell me, like, because I feel like most people listening have probably just had the Kikoman. How how different is an aged soy sauce, let's say, to what you're what you're getting in the little in the little packets?
2: It's like apples and oranges. It, it, it bears no resemblance at all. I mean, good. I mean, I'm especially taken with good artisanal Japanese and also Chinese soy sauces. Uh, Francis Lam a few years ago brought me some soy sauce back from China, which was so extraordinary, but, you know, made in small batches by a family that's making it for six generations.
1: Wow. And
2: What you get is so like in the stuff in the packets, basically what you're getting is liquid salt with really good, Aged, beautifully <clears throat> sorry, beautifully made soy sauce. Um, you're getting layers of flavor, yeah, real depth. I mean, something that sometimes you just want to drink it
1: because it's so delicious.
0: Wow, yeah, I think it's when I went to Tokyo. I had my fair. I feel like that was the most surprising thing to me, as well as real wasabi, which is like oh, another real
2: one. wasabi. Uh, amazing, and you know they're growing it now in the United States. They're growing. In Oregon, pretty good wasabi.
0: Get out of here, really. Yeah, yeah. Oh, interesting. Do you use the shark skin, or do you use the? Uh...
2: I have a shark skin. Yeah, I, do. I brought one back from Japan, and yeah. it's also such a beautiful object. I
0: Ooh. know. They're, they're, I have a nice little cute one, but uh, yes, I, I... they're they're awesome. I think I want to make like keychains out of them. They're so cute. Okay, this section here. So tell me this. So we've got poppy seeds, bean paste. And what is this on the right here?
2: That is um black bean paste with garlic and chili. And that's that's a great Chinese product. The Lan Chi products are fantastic. Um, if you uh, want to make, make a quick Chinese, I mean to make a really quick Chinese, almost anything, if you have you know black bean paste or real black beans, which I also have, um and, um, and if you have a little bit of, um, you know, the, the Chinese rice wine, yeah, um, it, you get the flavor instantly. I mean, you put a little ground pork, some onions, a little bit of black bean paste with chilies and garlic and a little bit of rice wine. And the flavor, the, the aroma comes up into your face and it's like, oh, this is Chinese food.
0: Right, right. Yeah, I've never, uh, I think Chinese rice wine is called Zhaoxing or something, right? Shaoxing. Shaoxing. I've, I've never I've never had any at home. I think I've just had the Japanese rice wine. How How does it compare?
2: This is another thing. It's hard to buy. You have to go to a Chinatown, basically, to, or if you have a really good Chinese supermarket near you, um, to buy really good Shaoxing because the stuff that you can buy online is all salt. It's cooking wine and right. it's salted and it's not good. Um, but I try and get really good Shaoxing wine for cooking. I mean, you you basically end up using like a tablespoon. So, you know, you get a bottle that lasts you for a long time. But again, it's one of those things, buy the best you can. And the thing that, one of the things I love so much about buying in Chinese stores is if it's more expensive, it's better.
1: Yeah,
0: <laughs> right. I
2: mean, I mean, that's just a rule of thumb. So when you go into a liquor store and you ask for Shaoxing, you just say, just give me the best you have. Yeah. Give me the most expensive.
0: <laughs> that's great. I mean, I imagine, it's, is it super expensive, the most expensive?
2: I mean, um, No, it's not super expensive. I mean, you know, maybe it's $25 a bottle.
0: Oh, okay. Okay. And uh, this uh, more more Chinese ingredients here. You've got a yes. lot of the Sichuan uh, chili oil, which is like my favorite stuff.
2: Uh, yeah, chili crisp is great. Um, that red brick at the top is um, pressed caviar, which is good to um, grate over um, just about anything. Pasta, oh, cool. anything. I mean,
0: so it's like a Bistarga type sitch?
2: It's like y- yes, except it's it's really good caviar. It, it's It's not the poor man's. This is the rich man's botarga.
0: (laughs) Right, right, right. (laughs) I love it. And then you've got your butter drawer here with like five different kinds of butter, which is awesome. Yes,
2: I I am a butter freak. I love butter. Same. Oh, And so, you know, the minute this pandemic (laughs) hit, I went out and bought a lot of butter. Oh, my God. What if they run out of butter?
0: (laughs) What is it that separates... You know, there's something about the butter when you go to like Per Se and then like the butter, the best butters that we can get in a store. Why is it such a dramatic difference? What is what's going on there?
2: Okay, so if you go, one of the things about um, going to Stone Barns, to Blue Hill at Stone Barns is that when they were open as a real restaurant, Dan would give you bread with two different kinds of butter. And they both came from the same place, but they came from different cows and they called them single udder butters. (sighs) And you could literally taste the difference. One cow liked, would only eat like lovely, fresh green grass and like the really tender grasses. Another cow liked all the bitter grasses and you can taste it in the milk. You can literally, I mean, these are two butters from the same farm, made exactly the same way, and you instantly get what terroir is in butter. I mean, wow. it, it matters what the animals were fed. I mean, milk tastes different coming from different places.
1: Yeah, yeah. Farm
2: also ate, I mean, I love cultured sweet butter. Um, it's, just, it's just a flavor that um, thrills me.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: So what is, uh, tell me, what, what's your life like now, Ruth, in quarantine? I mean, you, it seems like restaurants uh, were such a huge part of your life. Is it, is it still, uh, while you're in upstate, are you, do you, before quarantine, were you going out to eat a bunch or? or...
2: I mean, the, the, for me, the big difference before quarantine was I traveled all the time. And so traveling, you eat out a lot yeah. um, and I really miss restaurants. And it's not so much that I miss the food. I miss the experience of being in a restaurant. I miss the kind of drama, the um, being around people, meeting new people. Yeah. Um, I'm, I've am i been working on a documentary um, about how this pandemic is altering the food landscape. So, I spend all day Zooming with farmers, fishermen, food activists, food wholesalers, chefs, ranchers, dairy people, cheesemakers. We're trying to keep a day-by-day diary of how this food landscape is being altered. So that's my day now. It's just all day talking to food people and you know i'm really fortunate because i'm surrounded by farmers so i i am getting wonderful food you know
0: yeah um, i mean i this is bringing out the cynic in me this pandemic because i feel like i'm starting to see it in la now like all these fantastic restaurants are slowly just starting to close shop and who knows if they're going to come back like here's looking at you is one of my favorite places in LA I love that restaurant and they just closed like a couple of days ago and with no plans of of reopening and i feel like once this pp uh ppp or ppe i uh <laughs> <PPP> runs out <laughs> then it's yeah then I, I i just don't see how this is sustainable for restaurants
2: um we are going i uh, I think we will lose probably half of our independent restaurants and that may be optimistic even. And I mean, look, this is, this is a moment in our food life as Americans. And what we're seeing is that our food system is terribly broken and it's, it's bringing out all the ways in which it's broken. I mean, the idea that, you know, restaurants didn't have more than 10 days before they had Before they were out of money. I mean, it it just shows you what a bad business model restaurants have become in this country and um, You know, the idea that farmers routinely go to the USDA at the beginning of every season for loans. That's crazy I mean, very few farmers in this country actually make a living They most of them have side jobs, you know to keep their family farm going Um, the way we process all kinds of foods. I mean, the consolidation that's happened is a disaster. So my feeling is like, what's going to happen in this pandemic is either we as Americans will finally say, okay, this, this is not working. Our food system essentially has been run, running on the backs of undocumented workers who were exploited. And this is crazy. Um, we have the cheapest food in the world. We shouldn't. Um, we need to be paying more for food. We need to make this system work and maybe, you know, people are locked up, they're cooking, they're learning to cook again. They're learning about what it's like to be with their families at a dinner table and they're going to local farmers and seeing how hard they work and finding out how delicious food directly from the farm is. And either we will fix the system. Or the other thing will happen. And the other possibility is that restaurants fail, taking the farmers with them, fishermen, 85% of all the fish eaten in this country is eaten in restaurants. So the fishermen are desperate. Um, And maybe we'll just end up with industrial food and maybe most Americans won't care. I mean, the only restaurants left will be chain restaurants. And, um, you know, it'll be the triumph of Campbells and Heinz and Swan. I mean, I think one one or the other will happen. On my good days, I think this is great. We're not going to waste this crisis. We're going to do, you know, we're going to fix it. And on other days, I think this is just going to be a disaster.
0: Ruth, I should have told you before this is a comedy food podcast. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> sorry. <laughs> no, I'm I'm messing with you. It's just going to be so. T- I'm with you, and I think we eat too much cheap food and we eat too much meat and so that's why we need to make the price the prices are so artificially low and but to run on a campaign of make food more expensive how this is why it seems like such an uphill battle to me because it's like everyone's losing their jobs uh you know money is so scarce in general and then the only way to save this broken system is to make stuff more expensive it's just i don't I don't feel positive about it. It sucks.
2: But, you know, I mean, I think we have to understand what the costs of those cheap, that cheap food is. Yeah. I mean, the cost is that, you know, six out of 10 Americans suffer from chronic disease. We've destroyed the land. Um, you know, the water table is a disaster. I mean, it's very expensive. I mean, what we have to do is persuade the government to start supporting the rights side of the food system instead of the wrong side. I mean, um, decent food should be something that every American can afford. Yeah. And however we have to make that happen, we have to do it. Agreed. I mean, what we've paid for this cheap food policy is appalling. You know, I mean, ultimately it's not cheap. Ultimately it's very expensive and it's a price we can't afford anymore.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right. Well, I hope that we're both wrong and we get to go to restaurants soon. Although I'm curious what your experience in restaurants is. Is it, I mean, and you seem like a very not cynical person, so.
2: Oh, no, I'm not cynical.
0: From your writing and and just from, you know. So I'm curious, though. I want to bring a little bit of it out. Is there, is it annoying at all when you go to, is it more annoying or less annoying when you're recognized at a restaurant?
2: Well, now that I'm not a critic anymore, it's great. Right. (laughs) I mean, it's wonderful. You know, I've been writing about food for 50 years. And for a lot of that time, I had to hide. Yeah. And now, you know, I feel like um, now I get to talk to people about what they're doing. I mean, I I love food and I love food people. So being recognized is great because um, it means it's, I mean, I feel like I have like an instant friend, you know? I mean, um, you know, one of the things about having written all these memoirs is you walk in and people... You know, know your background. Yeah. It makes everything easier and more fun.
0: And I think the thing that made you very interesting as a food writer, a food reviewer was that I you weren't doing these like I feel like now a lot of the 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 food reviews that get circulated are these epic takedowns. Like, you know, like Peter Luger's got taken down and that I mean People who knew nothing about food were getting, the, were sending me this. They're like, did you see this review? <laughs> like, yeah. like, they just go around so much. I feel like you kind of stayed away from that.
2: I don't know. I mean, you know, that, that review that you cited in the beginning was pretty much of an epic takedown.
0: But even in your epic takedown, you know, half of it was about how great this restaurant is if you're treated well.
2: Right. Um, look, I love restaurants and food has changed dramatically in my lifetime. You know, I mean, when I was growing up, I mean, the people who went to restaurants were essentially your parents and your grandparents. They were, you know, rich people who went out for special occasions and everything was very starchy. And then we all got comfortable in restaurants and restaurants changed dramatically and they became um, places where young people wanted to be. And we suddenly had a really knowledgeable group of people going out to eat and the restaurants got better and better. And, but you know, when I started writing about restaurants, I mean, it was just, I just wanted everybody to love food and to pay attention to food. I mean, you know, I grew up in an America where nobody paid attention to food. So the, the, my, what, what I was trying to do in restaurant reviews was to make people want to go to restaurants, want to eat food, want to pay attention to what they were eating. Um, I mean, I didn't want to do them as uh, consumer reports. This is where you go spend your money.
0: Yeah, I mean, important. I'm with you. And I, I, it, it must have been so frustrating back then when there were there weren't that, first of all, there weren't that many great restaurants and then there weren't that many people who were interested in good food. So it must have been such an uphill battle to try to change kind of, On both fronts.
2: Well, yes and no, because I basically started my career in San Francisco. I mean, I was living in Berkeley and, you know, Berkeley was, I mean, all these young chefs were doing exciting things. Um, and, you know, it was really fun to try and get it out there and make people see, you know, what was going on in these restaurants. You know, I mean, Alice Waters was, you know, getting farmers to grow things, especially for her. And suddenly, You know, strawberries, which had tasted like nothing, Um, the supermarket strawberries. And suddenly, you know, Alice brought you a strawberry and it was like, oh, my God, this is what a strawberry can be. It was exciting. I mean, I I feel like, you know, the 70s and 80s were the most exciting time to be writing about restaurants in America. Because we were all discovering, we were discovering our own cuisine, you know, I mean, Paul Prudhomme took his, you know, K Paul's Cajun restaurant on the road and people lined up for 14 hours to get into the restaurant. Wow. And, you know, Americans discovered spicy food and then they suddenly found, oh my God, you know, there's California cuisine, there's Northeastern cuisine, um, there's, you know, the food of New Orleans. Uh, It was exciting. And, and people I mean, it was a much smaller group of people who were interested in food than today where food has become pop- part of popular culture. Um, but um, it was new and interesting and so much fun to write about because people didn't know much. And, you know, I mean, I was like one second ahead of the zeitgeist. But, um, you know, you got to introduce people to sushi, which they had never heard of. You know? and, ooh, ooh, raw fish? And then it was like, you know, who doesn't love
0: sushi? Right. It's so wild. And I I do think I have a lot of optimism for America's place in the world food scene now, because I do think that there's something about American ingenuity. And when we all focus on something, we we want to do it better than anyone else. You know, we focus on space. We're like, okay, I'm going to get to the moon first. And I feel like now we're like the food people are really focused in on the food, which is like. You know, now the barbecue people need to get the perfect wood for the barbecue. And, you know, it's like, I feel like that American ingenuity is now focused into food. And our food culture is, is I think, better than a lot of countries that have. Here's the thing. The, the problem with places like like Italy or, or France is that they're so steeped in culture that for them, a lot of it is like hard to, to, to get out of that. Whereas here, I feel like we're just very into pushing boundaries and there's no rules And I think because of that, we get a lot more exciting, kind of interesting, innovative stuff. True or false? You're
2: you're spouting my mantra. Oh, yeah? Okay, good. I've been saying, you know, the American food is probably some of the best food in the world right now. And, um, you know, partly because the EU rules in Europe really um, made local food less important. Whereas here, you know, suddenly the little cheese make, I mean, I remember I wrote about the first goat cheese in America in That's 1978. There was no goat crazy. cheese made in this
0: country. That's so and crazy. Now,
2: you know, now there's goat cheese in every, every little community is making its own goat cheese and they all taste different. And, um, you know, watching just the cheese culture in this country expand. And now you've got regenerative agriculture where people are really understanding that all vegetables are not the same. You know, vegetables grown in good soil, not only taste much better, but they're better for you. And so, you know, there's this huge movement in this country to make great local food. And I think it's bigger movement than anything you're seeing anywhere
1: else.
0: Yeah, I'm with you. Well, hopefully we can get back to that soon after all this. All right, Ruth, I can go on forever, but I need to get to my questions that I ask uh, every guest uh, towards the end of the episode, starting with what is your earliest food memory?
2: Oh, it's not a good one. I'm sorry to say. So my earliest food memory is I am sitting in my high chair and my mother put something on a spoon and sticks it out and I put it in my mouth. And it is the single most disgusting thing I have ever tasted. And I spit it out and my mother looks at me and she takes a bite, puts it in her own mouth and then says, what's wrong with you? This is delicious. And in that moment, I knew that my mother was dangerous, that she did not taste what I tasted. And that I had to, I mean, it's, it's what made me a food critic. From that moment on, every time my mother gave me something, I went to a tiny little bite went to see if it was going to be something I wanted to swallow because my mother was taste blind. And she literally, what it was, this disgusting stuff my mother had fed. My mother would let ice cream, you know, the, the dregs of the carton, she would pour them into an ice, you know, those old metal ice trays. And in one of those old refrigerators with yeah. you know, this department was completely covered up with ice. And so she would take the ends of all the ice cream cartons and pour them in there. And they would sit there and the texture would be kind of, I mean re melt melted ice cream. That's been refrozen. It has a horrible oh, yeah. sort of fuzzy texture and it had absorbed all the flavors of the refrigerator. I mean. Garlic and onions and broccoli. And it was truly disgusting. And my mother thought it was delicious.
0: So that's my first food memory. Wow. So the reason you got into food was to prove your mother wrong in a way.
2: Well, no, I mean, not to prove her wrong. I mean, literally to save my life. I mean, you know, my first book does end with my mother putting 26 people in the hosp- hospital with food poisoning. I and mean, she was a scary cook. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, if you're faced with a a an inadvertent poisoner,
0: right? You learn to taste very carefully. <laughs> right.
2: That wasn't what you were expecting, was it? No,
0: I, I, look a lot of a lot of the first uh, a lot of them are negative. The what is your first food memory? A lot of them are are things that I, I feel like that's what sticks. You know, it's like it's kind of like negative comments on YouTube. Like those are the ones that everyone can say a bunch of positive stuff, but the negative one is what sticks. It's true. What is your death row meal? So you, let's, let's say you bought a bunch of truffles. You thought they were Italian. You found out they were Chinese. You, you go to the guy who sold them to you. You kill him. You're on death row. <laughs> what is your death row meal?
2: So I have to tell you, I get asked this question all the time, and my answer is always different. Okay. Um, you know, <laughs> my, I mean, my stock answer is basically a never-ending meal. And
0: it just goes on and on and on. So that they can never kill you, yeah. <laughs>
2: um, but today... My answer would be because I I am in quarantine and I really miss sushi. So I would start with um, giant clam and then I would have lots of uni because I truly do love sea urchins. And then I would go on to, you know, the whole joyous world of raw fish. And that would that would be. Today, my death row meal.
0: So you go to the federal prison, you'd be like, I'd like an omakase.
2: <laughs> exactly. And, you know, and um, for masa, please. <laughs>
0: yes, exactly. <laughs> Speaking of masa, uh, what is the, this, uh, I'm so excited to hear the answer to this. What is the best high-end meal that you've ever had?
1: Oh,
2: my God. That, you know, in a lifetime of fabulous eating, probably the meal that sticks out is um, my meal at El Bui. Uh, Right before it closed, because Ferran called me and said, "You know, I'm closing the restaurant, and you sent someone to write the first American article about the restaurant. But and you've eaten my food in many places, but you've never been to the restaurant, so I want you to come." And oh my God, I I was walk. I was at when I got the call. I was walking with Nancy Silverton, and I turned to her and said, "You know, want to go to El Bui? And then, of course, all our friends wanted to come too. So we were a group of girls. And um, we went to the restaurant and it was magical. I mean, we got there at seven o'clock at night. And um, I think he gave us, I, I don't know, 40 courses, something like that. And in the middle, about midnight, there was a total eclipse of the moon and everybody in the restaurant went out and stood on the porch and watched this magic happen. And then we all went back inside and I think we were there till three in the morning, but, um, everything that he fed us was something I had never tasted before. And it wasn't all wonderful, but it was exciting. It was thrilling. I was there with people I loved. Oh, my, my son had just graduated from college. So I took him Oh, cool. Um, as a graduation present. So it was Nick and seven women. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Nick and the ladies. <laughs>
2: uh, but it was just, uh, it was a thrilling evening. And actually so much fun that that group decided we had to travel to have a meal together every, at least once a year, which oh. we have done every year since then.
0: I have goosebumps. That sounds incredible. And on the other side of the spectrum, what is the best low-end meal you've ever had? Could be a dirty dog off the street.
2: Well, I am very, I am very fond. I love all kinds of street food. But I know, I, think, I know
0: you love the halal trucks. I think I read somewhere that you're- I
2: did, I did. I, I, lo- I love, there, there was when I was, especially loved it when I was at Gourmet. I loved going going down to um, the Paki Trini boys and coming back with this really fragrant paper bag full of, you know, curried chicken and standing in the elevator next to Anna Wintour. It was a good particular <laughs> pleasure. Um, That's great. But, um, probably the best was, again, this is another girl's trip. Um, to, we went down to Baja, Mexico. And we went to a place called Ruben's Mariscos in Tijuana. And the best seafood ever. Um, blood clams and agua chiles, all freshly made. And um, you're just eating it on the street. But, um, the most beautiful woman is this, this older woman who's so beautiful. And she hands you the food at, from out of the truck. And every single thing is fabulous. And then there are about 20 different kinds of hot sauces to put on it. And we just stood there eating for hours.
0: Yeah. Mexican food scene, high end and low end, is just like uh, is across the board fantastic.
2: Well, in L.A.,
0: in L.A. or in Mexico, I went to Valle de Guadalupe, and the restaurants there were...
2: Oh, yeah. That's, that, that, this, this trip was on the way down to the Valle.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, the Valle is, like, one of my favorite places. Okay, what is, what is Ruth Reichel's favorite drunk food?
2: You know, I'm very big on bread and butter. Yeah. And, and matzahs and butter. I mean, probably, you know, late at night, nothing like matzahs and butter.
0: Matza and butter. Mm. Oh my god! That is, a. Uh, I'm not. I, I hate matzah. I think it's just that might be like a childhood anti Passover thing in me.
2: Uh, have you ever had matzahs and butter? Really good sweet butter on matzah.
0: I don't know. I feel like i I feel like every time I had matzah growing up, it was like with that with like the tempty whipped butter. Ooh. <laughs> it was awful. So you're a, a year round matzah person.
2: I am. Wow. I. I mean, I eat matzah barai a lot. Uh-huh. for breakfast. So yes, I am a year-round matzo person.
0: And what is your hangover cure? Uh,
2: I don't have one. <laughs> I mean, the idea of eating when you're hungover is really horrible.
0: <laughs> you just wallow in the misery of the hangover.
2: I do. Well, you know, then I swear I will never drink again.
0: <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> we all do. Okay. This one, I'm I'm fast. I would be fascinated by your answer. Who is your favorite? Celebrity chef or celebrity food personality who is not yourself?
2: <laughs> uh, well, you know, Nancy Silverton is one of my best friends. So, um, definitely Nancy. I mean, uh, I've lived at her house uh, for months. Uh, we've traveled together. Uh, she's uh, an inspiration, uh, you know, endlessly generous, uh, wonderful mentor. Uh,
0: so, and some know, of the best, I,
2: mean, I don't, you probably didn't want a friend, but that's what you've got.
0: <laughs> Look, I mean, I'll take the friendship out of it. I've always said, and I, I'm not very popular in a lot of circles for saying this, but I think the pizza at Pizzeria Moza is my favorite pizza in the U.S. Well, mine too. There's something about her crust that is just like, it's got this, I don't know, this like soft pretzely kind of feel that's just unbelievable.
2: Yeah, it's really great. And her di reco at, at Quispaca
0: is so delicious. What is that? Her what? Sorry. di reco. Oh, yeah. At,
2: at Quispaca. I mean, it was such... And she worked on that recipe for two years to get it right, but it's really right.
0: No, she's, she's badass. I think that's a great answer. All right, your desert island food. You're trapped on a desert island. There's one thing you have to eat for the rest of your life. I'm assuming it's bread and butter.
2: It would be bread and butter, but I thought I should probably give you a different answer because you don't want the same answer twice. It would be eggs. 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 I mean, a perfect food. Yeah. I find myself in this pandemic for, I don't know why, but I boil myself an egg every morning. I get these great local eggs and it's just, you know, a, a soft golden egg yolk. Is there anything better?
0: No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. I'm with you on that. Is there a food on the other side of the spectrum? Is there a food that you can't stand eating?
2: Only one. Honey. I loathe it. What? It makes me gag. Honey? Honey. Hate it. Ruth. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I just can't bear it. It it is... I cannot understand how people like it.
0: Is it just cloyingly sweet to you or...
2: It's not... I mean, I don't like sweet things very much. You know, I mean, my favorite flavor is probably lemon, but, um, there's something, it's, it's not just this cloying sweetness. It's, it's that tickle your throat. Oh
0: my God. I feel like that would, that's like what a cartoon villain would say. Like, I can't stand honey.
2: (laughs) 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 Well, I have to tell you, that's what I bonded with MFK Fisher of the first time I went to interview her she gave me tea and she said, I hope you don't want honey. And, and I said, no, I can't stand this stuff. And she said, me either. And we were instant friends.
0: Oh, that's so funny. (laughs) You know, it's funny. My, I have one that I can't stand as well. It's just one food and it's pickled herring. Oh, I know. Oh,
2: but you're wrong.
0: (laughs) I know. I know. I know. (laughs) But I've tried it so many different ways and I tried it in Copenhagen and I tried it here and I tried the, Something about sweetness and fish, it just, I can't get down with it.
2: Well, this is what you have to do. Once this is all over, you have to come to New York in June. And the first boatload of herring goes to the Dutch Queen. And the second boatload goes to the Oyster Bar in New York. And they serve this fresh herring. And it is
0: so delicious. The Oyster Bar in the West Village? No, the Oyster Bar in Grand Central. Oh, 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 okay. And they they've had a herring festival for years. Wow. Okay. I'll take you up on that. I'll do that. I'll send you a report after <laughs> I'll give it one yeah, last shot. Taste it. That's amazing. So the first batch goes to the Queen of Denmark?
2: Uh, no, of Holland. Of Holland, it's, it's sorry. The Dutch herring. Oh, yeah. Dutch,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. It's good to be the Queen. <laughs> <laughs> <It> is. <laughs> this, is a, this is another favorite question of mine because, you know, a lot of times we have comics here who love to uh, go off on this one. But I, I'm very curious to get the, uh, the answer from a non-cynic, a non-cynic. What is your restaurant pet peeve? This
2: is such an odd one, but it does drive me crazy. When the chairs are not the right height for the table. I mean, it's just when you sit down and you're either... You know, you you feel like a little kid at the table because it's you know, your chair's too low. Yeah. And I keep thinking, you know, this would be so simple. Why doesn't the owner just sit down? And you know, instantly, and it it ruins the the evening. You know, the minute you sit down, you know, oh, this is not going to be good. Or if or if it's too low and you can't quite figure out how to put your elbows on the table. Or,
0: it's awful, especially if it's one as low as one as high. I feel like I'm a little kid, like getting yelled at by my parents. Exactly. I'm actually. I this drives me insane, and I, I'm I'm am I'm an investor in, in a restaurant in New York called Estella. And oh, I
2: love you're an investor in Estella. Yeah, part of you. Yeah. Everybody's favorite restaurant. It's Ignacio a great, is a genius.
0: Yeah, he is. Uh, except not at setting up chairs, because there is one section of the restaurant where the banquet is higher. Then the chair, then the chair on the other side of the table. And it drives me insane.
2: Um, It would drive me insane, too. I fortunately have never been
0: seated at that table. Yeah, it's the closest one to the bar. Don't sit there. Um,
2: I'm glad. I'm glad to know that.
0: I hate to throw shade.
2: How incredibly smart. How did you end up investing there?
0: Um, you know, I was friends with uh, someone who was his name was Thomas Carter. He was the Somalier. I
2: mean, The guy who was disgraced. Right?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And he started out at Blue Hill, actually. And we were buddies and he was opening up a place and I'd met Ignacio and I thought he was really cool. And it was literally like they just had no money to start a restaurant. And I and I I mean, I didn't throw in a ton of money, but, you know, I helped out and it ended up. This is what's crazy about the restaurant industry is that that is like probably one of the biggest success stories in Manhattan. And it's still, they're still not making a ton of money. Like restaurants don't make a lot of money. It's such a, it's a crazy business model.
2: It is a crazy, but, and I think one of the things that will come out of this pandemic is, you know, part of why they don't make money is because rents have gone insane. Yeah. And, you know, after this, they won't be I mean, there's going to be a lot of empty places. And so the people who start out will have a better chance. And I think people are also looking at the model and thinking, you know, how do we how do we make this sustainable? How do we make this a decent business? Yeah. Um, So I don't think that um, you will see that kind of thing. I mean, it is crazy for a restaurant like Estella, which is, you know, just about everybody. I know it's their favorite restaurant. Right. I mean the and it's expensive. Yeah. I mean, it's not like you go there and they're giving you the food. It's no. expensive.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, and the idea that that restaurant, which you can't get into for love or money unless you reserve, you know, weeks ahead. Um, that that, that is not making a lot of money or that, you know, Gabrielle Hamilton at prune isn't, you know, she uh, had enough to what last for four days or something.
0: That and article like, broke my heart. I know. It it
2: was it was heartbreaking. Yeah. But Um, that model has to change. And I think everybody knows it.
0: Yeah, I think so too. I hope so. And speaking of restaurants, what is the restaurant, what is the first restaurant that you will go to after quarantine?
2: That is a great question. And I think the first you have to say, you know, (laughs) which
0: one will be open? I know. We're all going to go to the Olive Garden, basically.
2: (laughs) (laughs) But I, I will tell you, I mean, I would very, I mean, Estella would be right up there on my list of places I would want to go. Yeah. Um, or um, maybe Shuko, which is a sushi restaurant I like. I really am missing sushi a
0: lot. Mm. Yeah. Oh. You know, for me, I think it's, it's, I miss rowdy, full restaurants. I just want a rowdy, loud place full of people. Well, Ruth, they say never meet your heroes and they are wrong. You, uh, this, is, this was such a pleasure. And thank you so much. What would you like to plug? Where can the people find you?
2: Well, my latest book is Save Me the Plums. And go buy my book.
0: Sounds good. Uh, Go buy Ruth's book. There'll be a link to it on the Instagram. Thank you again, Ruth. Such a pleasure. And uh, yeah, uh, hopefully this will be over soon. And I look forward to hearing what your new project is with Dan Barber as well.
2: Thank you. This was really fun. Bye.
0: This episode of Green Eggs and Dan was produced by Andrew Steven. Executive produced by Jeff Umbro and The Podglomerate. You can find more of their podcasts at thepodglomerate.com. The theme music is Beautiful Food by Idan, and interstitial music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. If you like this show, please tell a friend, share an episode, and leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.